So listen to God's word for you this morning. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what you're facing, no matter what your circumstances are, this is something that God wants you to hear this morning from him. So Titus chapter 3, verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Now, this is the verse we're going to focus on. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. As I mentioned, we're finishing up this series on the people of God today. And uh, what this series has been all about is the church. What does it mean to be the church? We took a break from our series in Romans. We're going to start that back up next week, by the way, when the pandemic started, because we thought it would be important for the people of God here at Christ Church to be reminded of a very important principle, and that is this. The church is not a place people go to. The church is not a place people go to. The church is a people. The church is a people who go. A people who are sent by God the Father on his mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus in the world and to love others in the name of Jesus. That's what we've tried to look at this week. And we conclude today by looking at these final verses of Paul's letter to Titus. Paul wrote this letter to one of his protégés in ministry, Titus. He was a church planter on the island of Crete, which would have been a very challenging place to plant a church. And Paul wrote this letter to encourage Titus and to motivate him and to give him guidance as he served there as a pastor in the church. And the overarching message of Titus is that Titus and other pastors and the church itself should devote itself to sound doctrine and to promoting good works among the people. And here at the very end of the letter, Paul is encapsulating, he's summarizing everything he's written by encouraging Titus to teach the people to devote themselves to good works so that they can meet urgent needs and not be unfruitful. One of my favorite movies, if you've been around for a while, you know this, is The Shawshank Redemption. I love that movie. And one of my favorite lines from that movie is when Red, played by Morgan Freeman, I can't use the Morgan Freeman voice, unfortunately, but I can do the best I can. Red says, you have to either get busy living or get busy dying. Get busy living or get busy dying. In a time when hope is hard to come by, that is an important message. You could read these verses in the scripture as get busy living verses. These are verses meant to instill in us a sense of mission. Paul is asking Titus to lead the people, and Paul is asking us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be led into work, into good works. We've seen throughout this series that the people of God are a lot of different things, but what we find here is that the people of God are a working people. A working people. We're to devote ourselves to good works. Let's summarize the main idea just that simply. Here's the main point I want you to understand today. The people of God are called to devote themselves to good works. I'll break this down into three parts so you can follow it hopefully clearly. First, we see the command. Second, the reasoning. Third, the power. The command, the reasoning, the power. So let's look at the passage together for a few minutes. First, we see the command. Look at verse 14. Paul gives Titus an important piece of instruction here to end his letter, a command, really. He says, let our people learn. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Now, we've seen that word devote multiple times in this series, right? 
The people of God are a devoted people. We're devoted to worshiping Father, Son, and Spirit together. We're devoted to each other in fellowship and community. We're devoted to bold prayer and proclamation. We're devoted, as Will said last week, to using our spiritual gifts to edify the body and build one another up. And we see here today that the church is also to be devoted to doing good works for God's glory. We're to get busy living. Notice Paul also says that believers are to learn to devote themselves to good works. That word there, learn, implies something significant. It implies that devotion to good work is a process. It's a lifelong up and down process. All of us, if we are Christians, are continual learners. And our learning, the scriptures say, should produce and result in faithful obedience, in good works. So to learn something means a lot more than just intellectual acquisition and accumulation of knowledge. You could translate this word to grow or to move forward. Learning is akin to Christian discipleship. It refers to growing more and more into the image of Jesus himself. And that involves both instruction and application in real life, right? It's hearing, as James says, that results in doing. In the Harry Potter series, uh, there's a good illustration of this. When Voldemort, the evil wizard, has come back, and Harry and his friends at Hogwarts know about it. Uh, Everything changes in the novels, and this is in Harry's fifth year of school. He's in a class called Defense Against the Dark Arts. Defense Against the Dark Arts, and that's a class where they learn to ward off evil spells from bad magicians. But at the beginning of their school year, their teacher only allows them to read from the textbook, And as young wizards, they're very frustrated by this after a while because they know that there's evil lurking just around the corner and they need to know practically how to defend themselves should an evil wizard come after them, which it turns out actually does happen in the same book. Spoiler alert, they fight each other, the wizards fight. Um, The point is, what they needed was not just to be studying a book. They needed hands-on practice. And it wasn't until Professor Lupin came and takes over the class that they begin to actually apply practically the things, the theories they're learning about. That's what the Christian life is to be like too. God is not interested in merely you acquiring more knowledge. He's not interested in more information. Christian growth is not about information. Christian growth is about formation. It's about formation. So here's an initial question for us to consider based on the command God gives us here that we should learn to devote ourselves to good works. Does your life reflect obedience to this command? As one of God's people, are you learning? This is one of the questions that the Holy Spirit asks of us through this text. Are you progressing in devotion to good works? Are you bearing fruit that's evident to other people? Is your love for Jesus growing? Are you more satisfied with Jesus? Is your prayer life vibrant and reflecting a sense of your dependence on the Lord? Are you learning or are you stagnant? Usually in the life of a disciple, you're either moving forward or you are stagnant. Maybe one thing the Lord 
wants to say to me and to you this morning is to repent of a lackadaisical attitude towards growth in godliness, towards learning at the feet of Jesus. Our posture as his people is always one of learning, learning at the feet of the master. That's the command. The people of God learn to devote themselves to good works. Next, we see the reasoning, the reasoning. And Paul gives two reasons why we should obey this command. Look at the first one, verse 14. He says, devote yourselves to good works so as first to help cases of urgent need. What does that word urgent need mean? An urgent need is a pressing felt need of someone else. Paul uses this phrase, urgent needs, three times in his letters, and it always means exactly that. Um, Urgent needs mean needs requiring works of mercy and justice on the part of the people of God. And I find it helpful, and I think the scriptures teach, urgent needs fall into two broad categories. There's urgent needs from within the church, and there's urgent needs outside of the church. And so devoting ourselves to good works, we do that so that we can meet both spheres of urgent needs. So we're to learn to do good works, to care for urgent needs within, to care for God's people. A few weeks ago, we studied Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. And you see in that passage that one of the things that is to typify the church is that they take care of each other, so much so that Luke in Acts says they all had everything in common. So very practically, very practically for you today, if you're a part of this church, it means that we are not going to let you have unmet urgent needs. That's one of the chief roles of the deacons in local churches and in this church. So if you're financially impacted by coronavirus and the economic fallout and you can't pay all of your bills, we are going to help you meet your financial obligations. If you're out of a job and you need help finding new work, we're going to help you find a new job. If you're depressed and struggling emotionally or mentally and in need of counsel, we want to help you find a good counselor. We want to meet one another's urgent needs. Paul says elsewhere, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, as we have opportunity, he says, let us do good to everyone but especially to those who are of the household of faith, of the church. We meet urgent needs from within, but we also are called in the scripture to meet urgent needs outside of the church. Listen, the church does not exist merely to make sure all of us are doing okay. That's not the sole reason the church exists. The church is a missionary society that exists to help the world encounter the love of God seen in Jesus. And one of the ways the church does that is by meeting urgent needs in our world. So part of what this text is calling you to, if you're a follower of Jesus, and part of what it's calling me to is to speak out against and to thwart the works of darkness and evil in this world. Helping cases of urgent needs means fighting against injustice. However we can do it in our limited capacities. Christians should have a sensitive social conscience. 
Christians should care more than anyone else about the common good. Christians should be on the front lines of the fight for social justice. I know that's a controversial word, but let me tell you, God cares about social justice. If you read the Bible, justice is one of the most common themes that refers to his character. God wants all people to experience equity, fairness, and dignity because all people are made in God's image. Social justice is a biblical concept. It's not a political concept, and it's unfortunate that it's become so politicized. Christians should be involved. Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. He calls us the light of the world. Therefore, we should care. We should meet urgent needs that we see around us to the best of our ability. So what do you mean, Luke? What issues are you thinking about specifically? I'm sure you and I could have a conversation and come up with a huge number of valid concerns. One of the things we talk about here at least once a year are what I consider to be the two most significant national sins that we face as a country. And you might not like what I'm about to say, but I don't really care if you like it. I want you to listen to it. The first is abortion. Abortion. We are to work to meet one of the urgent needs from without, which is to see that abortion is eradicated from our country. Devoting yourself to good works implies that you care about that issue. Well, what does that mean? It means you can educate yourself. It means you can volunteer your time and your money to serve and give to agencies like Resources for Women. One of our elders, Alan Tysinger, is on the board of that agency. I'm sure he would love to speak with you about how you can get involved. To fight against it means you engage in the political process, not because politics are a hope. In fact, they're the opposite of a hope, usually, but because politics, in its essence, is collaborative work between humans. And one of the ways we can fight against the injustice of the taking of the lives of the unborn is through engagement. There's all kinds of ways that we can meet that urgent need. Another urgent need that is undoubtedly in the forefront of our national consciousness right now is racial reconciliation. Meeting urgent needs means working to rid this world of racism. If you don't believe that's a need... You need to wake up. If you don't believe that's a need, you need to open your eyes. Can I say that to you lovingly? I mean, the death this week of George Floyd, a a black man slain on the street in Minneapolis, is just another reminder, no matter how you think it all falls out politically, it's just another reminder that the civil rights movement in this country did not just all of a sudden make racial prejudice disappear, poof, in 1969 like a ghost in the air. That's not the case. It's still around, and it's been around for 400 years. It's still a problem. So how do you devote yourselves to good works in that area? You can educate yourself. You can read a book about that topic, especially if you're white. You can speak to African-American Christians or Christians of other races and ask them about their experience and talk about how the gospel can change this particular issue. If you want resources on that, come talk to me about it. Love to give you some of those. So we're to devote ourselves to good works, to meet urgent needs within the church and outside of the church on big time cultural issues that God cares about and that we should care about and on the basic needs we see in front of us each day. There's a second reason though that Paul gives that we that mean or why we should learn to devote ourselves to good works. So look in the text again. The first reason is to meet urgent needs within and without. The second reason is so that we will be fruitful. Actually, what Paul says at the end of verse 14 is so that we would not be unfruitful. 
Now, that metaphor of fruitfulness is one that Jesus uses all the time, right? If you've read the Gospels, you've undoubtedly heard him talk about that. And what Jesus means when he talks about this idea of fruitfulness is this. If what you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth is really true, it's going to show itself up in your life by what you do. If, if what you believe in your hearts, if you believe in your heart, what you claim to believe with your mouth, then that belief is going to express itself in tangible instances of love in your life. Jesus says, no bad tree bears good fruit. Fruitfulness requires that we do something. It requires a behavioral response and action. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, writes this. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Holiness is not a matter of what you think or of what you feel, but of what you do. So a mark of fruitfulness among the people of God is when we are engaged in good works, when we are learning and growing in our love for and care for others. Fruitfulness means you're doing things in your life that please the Lord, not perfectly, but truly. Look at what Paul says fruitfulness is not. Fruitfulness is not primarily diagnosed by the level of your emotional response. I was watching Oprah recently. Why was I watching Oprah, you may ask? I don't remember exactly. I think someone sent me a clip but it's not a habit of mine. And in this uh, clip, Oprah was visiting a massive, massive megachurch that uh, had just grown like crazy and leapt onto the national scene. And she was doing a story on this pastor and his family and on the church. And in the clip, it shows Oprah in this worship gathering. And I don't know if you know this, but Oprah's not a follower of Jesus Christ or anything close to it. But she was on the front row of the service And by her external emotional response, you would have thought she was, you know, Jesus's next door neighbor and loved him more than anybody. She was hands in the air, tears flowing, as into it as anybody could be into it. Now, I'm not trying to negate the importance of our emotional life or even to say that all emotional responses are ungenuine. What I am saying is that fruitfulness is not primarily gauged by your emotive, emotive responses. Nor is fruitfulness primarily gauged, this is the one we Presbyterian folks struggle with, by your intellectual acumen, by how much you know. There are people that write books about the Bible for a living that know more about the Bible. They've forgotten more about the Bible than I will ever know. And they don't believe a word of it. I've read these people and I know this to be the case. Fruitfulness isn't diagnosed by your emotions, and it's not diagnosed by your intellect. It's diagnosed by what you do, by your good works, by your meeting needs, by your pushing back darkness, by your doing what you can in the areas God has placed you to love God and to love your neighbor. Paul gives a command here. God gives a command. Learn to devote yourselves to good works. And he gives two reasons, to meet urgent needs and to not be fruitless or unfruitful. Now, last thing, the power, the power. It's dangerous sermons to preach here, okay? In fact, there's twin dangers in sermons like this where you're being called to do something. And sermons like that happen all the time if you're preaching through the Bible because there's a lot of commands in the Bible. There's a lot of imperatives. 
One danger is that some of you are going to hear me and you're going to leave and you're going to think, I'm going to change the world. Let's go. Get behind me. Line up. I'm going to fight against injustice. I'm going to push back the darkness. I'm going to do everything within my power to make sure that everyone on the planet has a better life because God loves me and God loves this world. Let's go. Maybe you're wired that way. You're an achiever. You're a doer. You're ready. You're fired up. You want to run through those doors and go take the world for Jesus. That actually can be a danger because it's very easy in that situation to begin to fall into self-reliance, to begin to manifest and demonstrate spiritual pride. That's one danger. The other danger is the polar opposite. There's spiritual pride, but there's also spiritual paralysis. And some of you might be feeling that when you hear me talk about things like abortion and racism. You're like, Luke, come on. I can barely get out of bed three days a week. I can't teach my kids math Homeschool's done, praise Jesus. Can I get an amen for that? We're in the summer. I can't get through a math lesson with my second grader without using the calculator seven times. Come on. How am I supposed to do all this, Luke? And because you feel overwhelmed at the things I'm saying and at the things the scriptures say, you're just paralyzed and unable to do anything. There's spiritual pride on the one hand and there's spiritual paralysis on the other hand. That's why we have to understand when we hear sermons like this, where our motive and where our power really come from. Listen, the power for good works, the power for fruitfulness in your life is found in the grace God gives you in the gospel. The power for good works is found in the bloody cross and the empty tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. Look at Titus again. Look at Titus chapter 2. The chapter before where we're looking, verse 11, here's what Paul says there. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to everyone, training us. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God trains us. It empowers us to do good works. That's exactly why Paul ends this letter the way he does. The last thing he says in this letter and in all of his letters Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. The power for obedience, the power for your devotion and my devotion is in grace. It's in grace alone. Let me wrap up with this. Go back to the metaphor of fruitfulness. Remember the image Jesus uses in John chapter 15. He's speaking to his disciples and he's speaking to you indirectly. He calls us there to bear fruit. And Jesus says, Jesus, not me, Jesus. He says, if you don't bear fruit, I'm going to cut you off and throw you into the fire to be burned. Significant kind of scary language there from Jesus. But then he says, John 15, 6, apart from me, you can do nothing. (laughs) Notice Jesus doesn't say you can do nothing. He does not say that. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And just before that verse, John 15, 5, Jesus says, the one who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So the grace that Paul's referring to in Titus 2 and in Titus 3 is the provision. It's the provision that God has made in Jesus. Grace means 
we are helpless on our own, but we can abide in the one who comes to help us. We are powerless on our own, but we can turn for strength to the one who has infinite power. When we're left to ourselves, we are fruitless branches. But we can, by faith, connect to the life-giving vine that is Jesus for all that we need, including our devotion to good works. That's the beauty of the Christian life. It's the beauty of the, the learning process that we're talking about here. God provides the power to do what he requires of us. God provides the power for you to do what he asks you to do. St. Augustine, the great theologian, put it very succinctly. God gives what he commands. God gives what he commands. God knows that on our own, every single one of us is unwilling and unable to be fruitful, to do good works. God knows that on our own, we're not going to obey him, and we don't want to obey him. But God has given us Jesus. And God gives us Jesus' spirit to empower us to obedience. So abiding in Jesus by faith brings good works. It brings fruitfulness. Ironically, resting and relying on the gospel is what empowers and enables our restless fighting for mercy and justice in this world. So, last question. Are you abiding today? Are you abiding, are you abiding in, a, in a world gone crazy and haywire? Are you connected to the vine? How do you know? Well, if you look at your life and you see yourself as more and more of a mess and a failure as you move forward in this life, if you look at your life and think, man, my sin is getting bigger and nastier and uglier, that is actually a sign that you are in fact abiding, but only if the cross is correspondingly getting larger and more glorious and more beautiful to you. The way to abide is to acknowledge how big of a failure you are and how rebellious you are, and then to believe and rest in the fact that the cross and the love of God is bigger still. Listen, God loves you more than you love your sin. God in Jesus loves you so much that he was willing to take the full weight of all of your rebellion against him on himself so that Jesus said, it is finished. It's when you can rest in that and abide in that and believe that that you're more corrupt and broken than you ever imagined, but you're more loved than you ever dared dream. That good works, that fruitfulness, that meeting urgent needs begin to erupt like a beautiful gospel volcano in your life. People of God at Christ Church, let's get busy living, to quote Red again. Let's learn to devote ourselves to good works. Let's help cases of urgent needs. Let's not be unfruitful. And let's do it together in reliance and in dependence upon the one who gave us his life at the cross and who even now gives us his life through his spirit. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit.